Now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard Podcast, your twice-weekly excursion into transportation excellence, and I am your conductor, Phil Bell, Enterprise B, PB Chris, Mr. 645, a highly trained rail enthusiast, and I'm blessed to hold the E. Hunter Harrison Chair at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases. And it's great to be back behind this, the Brunswick Green PLB microphone. We had a great weekend down in Timonium, Maryland, where we had a wonderful time meeting a lot of you who came out to the Great Scale Model Train Show. Uh, there is so much fun at one of these so if you haven't been to one i encourage you to go and while we were there we were very lucky that our good friends at printron bought us this the 2024 north american railroad calendar by of course all things trains and so what i want you to do is go over to etsy and get one but before we do that and sell you more things let's get right into today's episode which is part two where we talk about auto train now in case you haven't done it already, go over to watch Auto Train Part 1. The reason we're talking so much about Auto Train is because it is a great example of intermodal transportation and also how the rail industry pulled itself by its own bootstraps with a combination of folks who were already involved in the industry and a lot of outside entrepreneurs such as Eugene Garfield, who in the 1970s and 1980s said, okay, look, the rail industry has been through some tough times, but there's a lot of really good things here. There's a lot of energy efficiency. There's a lot of economic efficiency. So we need to find ways that we can make more money for this. So Auto Train is a great example. In the future, we'll be talking more about Conrail, which is another example, even if it happened in a different way. But today, let's get to part two. So to recap a little bit, Auto Train started operating in 1971, which is the same year that Amtrak did. And it was helmed by an entrepreneur named Eugene Carrick Garfield, who had worked for the United States Department of Transportation. And in the course of that, he found a study that they did, which said, look, there would be a lot of opportunity for railroads to succeed with uh, by using an auto ferry service. This had been tried a little bit by the Canadian National Railway, but never to a great extent. So Eugene Garfield raised $7 million in an IPO, and he was able to get his system off the ground in 1971, operating between Lorton, Virginia, which is in Fairfax County, right outside of the Washington, D.C. area, which then as now has some of the worst traffic in the nation. Now, take, for example, Los Angeles. You think traffic is bad in L.A., but no matter where you go, no matter what you try to do in the Fairfax County area and Northern Virginia in general, you will get stuck in traffic. Now, why does this matter? Because if you're driving from the Northeast to Florida, undoubtedly, even as you get as Doug Riddle, who was a former engineer for the Seaboard Coastline, Amtrak, and also the author of Amtrak's Auto Train, which is one of the books we used as we prepared this show, uh, and we'll include a link to that because it's definitely one that you should pick up. Um, as he points out that in some cases, these traffic jams start as far south as 100 miles away in Richmond, Virginia. And we know they start a pretty good ways away uh, in Baltimore and around major holidays, even north of Baltimore as well. So that gives you an idea of what happens. So if you're driving from, let's say, New Jersey, you drive down the New Jersey Turnpike, you hit traffic. You get into Maryland, you hit traffic. You get around D.C., you don't hit traffic. You hit a wall of traffic, which means you can't go anywhere. It takes you forever to get around the Beltway. And then once you get back on I-95 headed south, you guessed it, 
more traffic. Is it because of accidents? Nope. Is it because of stupid people? Maybe a little bit, but that's what happens here. And it's that way all the way to Richmond. In fact, you will almost find yourself in Petersburg, which is in uh, South Central Virginia, or even the North Carolina border before things really do open up and give you the opportunity to drive. So this is what led Eugene to say, Eugene Garfield, to say, look, we can make a lot of money doing this because we have a funnel. A lot of people will come from the Northeast in a variety of places. They will funnel into the D.C. area, get on their train, take that train to Sanford, Florida, which is near Disney World, just outside of Orlando. And then from there, they'll be able to get on a variety of highways, whether they're going south to Miami, whether they're going to the west coast of Florida, where there are a lot of... Uh, not only retirement communities, but very good beach communities. They'll be able to go to a variety of areas within Central Florida where Walt Disney World then as now was the major economic driver. And this, by the way, was before other parks such as Universal Studios were opened, or they can go into North Florida, Northern Gulf Coast, you name it. So it was perfect and it worked very well. In fact, right off the bat, Auto Train was a roaring success. And what made it even more interesting was the fact that Eugene Garfield didn't believe in just simply running trains as trains had been. He dressed the train up in some really interesting colors. White was the primary color, which is something you generally don't paint trains with because they tend to get dirty very quickly. But in addition to that white, he had red and purple. The undercarriage of the locomotives, the trucks, the fuel tanks, those were purple. I mean, think about it. Now, granted, it sounds like the 1970s threw up and in a way they kind of did but it was revolutionary for the time when even the most interesting paint schemes on trains were seen as being stayed, dated, and something from an era that no longer existed. And I'll give you an example of this for those of you who have not yet seen our uh, part one on this. And here you have a auto train U36B doing some switching at the Sanford station in Florida. You see uh, in front of the U36B, it's a caboose. The auto train, original auto train, did run with cabooses as that was required by the host railroads. And then also you have to the right, there is a Baldwin switcher. They did have several of those Baldwin switchers that operated at the terminals in Lorton and Sanford, and those were really interesting part. But you can see that's what the original auto train looked like. But they didn't stop there. You had nightclubs on board. You had uh, uh, car attendants, female car attendants, of course, dressed in mini skirts and I think micro skirts. They looked really good. It was something totally different from what had been on the rails before. So this worked out pretty well. And throughout the time when the auto train operated, it was characterized by growth. In fact, at some points, you had to operate the train with the auto carrier separate from the passenger cars because the train was so long. However, things started to go south, pun intended, uh, fairly early. 1973, March 13th. Hortons, Georgia, which strangely enough has become an area where more than a few uh, grade crossing accidents happen. The auto train hit apparently a truck carrying cigarettes and um, two of the locomotives were damaged and never could be repaired. Those are the brand new U36Bs that they had purchased. Uh, May of 1974, this was a positive. They decided to start operating a second train from Louisville, Kentucky to Sanford, Florida. Now, this was taking advantage of the fact that there are more people who at the time went from the Midwest to Florida than from the Northeast to Florida. And that Midwestern route has the same characteristics. You have a funnel. You have a lot of places in the Midwest. You think about the Chicago area, the Milwaukee area, 
uh, Western Illinois, you name it. A lot of these people funnel in to I-75 and some of the routes that come down to Florida. So what would you do? You would get them at a certain point because remember how the auto train works. You have to drive some of the way because if it was just something that was positioned in, say, Chicago, even though land for loading and unloading facilities could have been had there, it was unlikely that people would actually take the service. I don't really understand that psychology, but they need to drive some of the way before they get on to put their cars on the train and then use that funnel to get them to the Florida in within Florida where they're headed. Um, and so Louisville, Kentucky was deemed to be the area. Now I'll give you an example back in 2019, I took a trip from Louisville up to Chicago. I went to Louisville to see the CNO 2705 be taken to, um, excuse me, 2716. I'm sorry, I'm getting my CNO uh, 284 Kana, steam locomotives confused. CNO 2716 to be moved from the museum at Kentucky Railway Museum to Ravenna, Kentucky, where it was going to be refurbished. So it was a great rail fan event. I saw it. And then I hopped in the car and I said, all right, I'm driving up to Chicago because in West Chicago, the big boy was going to be there. Two steam engines, one rail fan trip. Sounds amazing, right? Well, I can tell you, I-65 between those points in 2019 was an absolute drag. And I can't tell you how many times part of it had to do with being sick, but also part of it had to do with just getting completely tired because it takes you forever is uh, one of the worst highways that you can drive, I think, in the entire country, traffic notwithstanding. Not only that, but once you get in the Chicago area, you have terrible traffic and a lot of different highways that go a variety of areas. And so you got to think back into an era when there was no GPS. And yes, you were getting out the map like this. Your kids were saying, wait, now where are we supposed to go? Take a left here, take a right there. That was a difficult drive. So a lot of people, by the time they got to Louisville, said, I'm not going to stop here to get on a train. Let's just keep going and save money. And so they did. And ultimately, this service, which operated for uh, three years between Louisville and Sanford, by the way, from a purpose-built terminal that was built outside of the city of Louisville that allowed for loading and unloading, uh, ended up stopping in 1977. And this happened after... Amtrak and Autotrain had gotten together, as we talked about a little bit previously, to do this. And this, you see, is the Autotrain, but it stopped at a weird place, which is Amtrak's Clifford Lane Station in Jacksonville, a.k.a. known as the place where Phil got a lot of his railroad knowledge from, um, or as the kids would say, got a lot of game from, and I did. Um, that's The Autotrain is here because... It is combined with the Floridian. So Amtrak, President Paul Reistrup, and Eugene Carrick Garfield got together and said, hey, you know how we could make our two trains, which are terrible, work better? Well, let's combine them into one terrible train. And since the auto train didn't operate every day, this actually worked fairly well, at least in theory. So you had, at times, the Amtrak consist, uh, you're pulling by the Amtrak locomotives, the auto train locomotives, the auto train carriers as part of it. Um, but... The auto train service suffered from the same thing that Amtrak services did on this route, which was that the Louisville and Nashville's track was terrible. And I was told this personally by Eugene Garfield himself, and I didn't believe it because 
as we've talked about in a variety of episodes. The LNN was a coal hauling railroad, and there is no better commodity for railroads to haul than coal because it is very profitable due to the fact it needs comparatively limited handling. Not only that, but the LNN was a big financial driver for its parent, the Seaboard Coastline, which of course was the host railroad for the auto train. So when I or auto trains Eastern Service. So when I heard this, I was really surprised that you'd think the LNN had bad track. But not only did they have bad track, and Eugene Garfield said so, but Doug Riddle said so, and just about everybody from that era. So that shows you the sort of decline when a very, very profitable railroad that had comparatively few obligations such as commuters actually had no commuter service and uh, few passenger trains, which they had offloaded to Amtrak in 1971, could then have a situation where their track was so bad that a two trains a day, one north, one south, would struggle so mightily. And this is after, in the case of the Floridian, struggling on the Penn Central trackage north of Louisville. Uh, and having to switch a variety of routes there, but that is a story for another day. Anyway, 1977 comes, and Amtrak and uh, Auto Train say, all right, we're done with this. The Auto Train service to Louisville ends. However, Amtrak does continue to use the Louisville station for uh, two more years until 1979, which is when... Um, when they discontinued the Floridian as part of the Carter era cuts to Amtrak service. And that is something that I think is so surprising. Uh, and I always like to remind people whenever they talk about, uh, talk about Amtrak and they want to say, well, this political party is good for Amtrak and that political party is good for Amtrak. In reality, you're, you're going to struggle no matter what, which is why you should be very, very circumspect about who it is you want to fund your train service. And as a free market guy, I will say, and yes, I am vamping a little bit here, trying to get you uh, get you a picture of the uh, of the Louisville Sanford service uh, on the auto train. But you know that's that's one of the reasons why I believe, and I've said in some of our prior episodes that Amtrak will forever struggle because. You know, they are uh, a creature of the U.S. government. Well, it looks like technical difficulties are getting the better of us, so we will continue on. Um, 1979, Amtrak Floridian goes away, and finally, you see the end to the use of the Louisville train station that Autotrain had constructed for itself. So, what happens after that? Well, 1981 comes, and in 1981, Autotrain finally gives up the ghost. It had gone bankrupt in 1980, but the trustee, Murray Drabkin, who was an attorney, he believed that the auto train could be successful because after all, with the limited funds that Eugene Garfield had raised, it had been. And I want to address that a little bit. A lot of the discussion of the original auto train talks about how it was undercapitalized. And even some more of it says that the profits were really ephemeral because of depreciation and a variety of things that just simply don't make any kind of economic sense. Now, I believe, and I will go to my grave believing this, I do not believe that Autotrain was undercapitalized. I believe that the reality of operating a railroad became much, much, much more difficult as time went on. And so while 
Auto Train had a great business plan in that we're going to start the service with what we can get. We're going to make it run. We're going to get a lot of people to come in. We're going to use that to add to our um, add to our capital base. And from there, grow. We're going to grow organically. I think that was the right business plan to do. The sad part is when you combine not just one wreck, and we talked about the one in Hortense, Georgia, uh, several years later, they had two. I believe the year was 1976, which took place in Virginia, and that was a result of cracked wheels. And then you had another one that was fairly serious uh, in South Carolina, also the result of a cracked wheel, this time on a locomotive. Those are the sort of things that put the company out of business. Now, I know you might say, well, maybe if they had better capital, had more capital, they would have been able to conduct better maintenance, and this never would have been a problem. Well, one thing that Gene told me was you absolutely have to use ultrasound technology to go through your wheels. I do not know how much this was used in that time. And this was a conversation that we had in the uh, late 2000, excuse me, early, I think it was 05, 06, somewhere in there. Because um, I had known him for a while, but he was very, very adamant about that. We talked and we just talked by phone. Uh, we had never met in person. But it makes you wonder to what extent this could have been an issue later on. And investigation methods and so forth not being what they are now, I don't know to what extent that was ever actually tracked or understood. So if somebody out there in podcast land knows, please respond in the comments and let me know what you know of these accidents and the issues with cracked wheels and so on. And remember, metallurgy is a very difficult thing. So this could have been something where a supplier had a bad run of poorly cast metal and no one knew because you would purchase these things in bulk and store them and then put them uh, to work when needed. This could have been a situation of the way they were stored. This could have been um, perhaps purchasing from a supplier that may have intentionally cut corners and never let the railroad know. We don't know, and like I said, I don't know if this has ever been investigated or understood, but the result of these cracked wheels was a depletion of auto trains capital, not only because cars and equipment were destroyed, but because money had to be paid out to victims and otherwise. So this was very difficult. And in 1980, the company went bankrupt. The trustee Murray Drabkin fired Eugene Garfield from his own company, which should tell you something about why you never, ever, ever want to get involved in bankruptcy if you can avoid it. That's personal bankruptcy or corporate bankruptcy. It almost never goes well if you want to continue doing what you're doing. And then in 1981, after searching for a buyer, uh, Drabkin ended up shutting the operation down. Now, I want to say something that's interesting. I want to commend Murray Drabkin for taking the time and making the effort to try to find a buyer. What stopped him was the fact that Autotrain owed $5 million to the RF&P, Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac, and Seaboard Coastline Railroads for providing crews and trackage rights, which is the right to operate the train uh, over their lines. When the bankruptcy trustee was going about this process, they said this has to be paid for anybody else to assume it and other... Um, potential buyers were unwilling to do so. Now, that's also something that I, I want to you know, get into briefly when it comes to the bankruptcy process. This is one thing that you've got to remember 
uh, bankruptcy does not mean that the company or even the operations of the company are irreparably damaged and that it's run by reprobates and everything is terrible. That's the way the media tends to paint bankruptcy of any sort. The reality of bankruptcy can be simply that you have a cash crunch or simply that your capitalization, your debt, your equity, or however that is arranged, certain agreements that go along with that, labor agreements, you name it, are simply not working at this time. So a lot of things can be agreed to that will work at a certain period, but now as we get here, they're not, and this is an opportunity to change that. And it's also a way that creditors have the ability to protect their interests. Now, for those of us who are like me who think, Man, I really wish the auto train was running as a private service, and I wish it was my private service, but you get the idea. Uh, it can be a little bit disheartening seeing how the bankruptcy process does play out. But I think Murray Drabkin did a very, very good job in looking for it. The one thing I want you to always remember, though, is that the trustee's job is to get as much value as he can for creditors. That's why a lot of creative schemes that might work with a solvent business do not work with an insolvent business. For example, were I there and I showed up and I'd say, hey, I'll pay you the $5 million, but if I paid the $5 million, I get everything. I'm not going to muck around and pay another $5 million to buy the equipment and the property and so forth. I'll pay you $5 million, I'll continue it, and I'll give the new, uh, give the creditors a stake in the business so they have a chance to share in the upside. Now, in a lot of cases, that might be something that a seller of a solvent business would agree to. Pay his debt off and then give him a chunk in the business going forward. That sounds great, especially since he'll have a uh, have the ability to potentially claw it back if you don't pay and things don't work out. But in this case, it didn't happen. So AutoTrain and all of its equipment sat for several years while they tried to sell things off. But what happened? A lot of the cars were sold off and the property was sold off to the National Railroad Passenger Corporation, a.k.a. Amtrak. So while the first part of the auto train story was characterized by Eugene Carrick Garfield, who is a plucky, hardworking entrepreneur who wanted to do new things with the rail industry. The second part of the auto train story is characterized by this man, W. Graham Clater Jr. And Graham Clater was the president of Amtrak from 1982 to 1993. He has been the longest tenured Amtrak president even now. And many say that he was the best Amtrak president. And his story is interesting. He was a military officer. He uh, believes the USS Indianapolis was sunk. He took his ship without authorization. I should say without authorization. That's important. Went over and saved the victims as many as he could from the Indianapolis sinking in World War II. So he is absolutely a war hero. He became president of the Southern Railway. Uh, from 1967 to 1977, uh, following Bill Brosnan. And of course, what is he known for best as being part of the Brosnan uh, era? Well, that is the fact that he was, in fact, part of a lot of the passenger train discontinuances that the Southern Railway did during that time. So we talked about how the new Royal Palm, which at one point ran from Cincinnati to Miami, was cut back to Jacksonville. Uh, in the 1960s, and then the Southern, under Clater, who was an attorney and a very good attorney, realized that if you only have one stop in a neighboring state, you can discontinue service 
to the neighboring state. So rather than take the new Royal Palm to Jacksonville, they stopped it at a field in Georgia. Why? Because they didn't want to run the train anymore. It wasn't making any money. It may sound harsh, but the reality is they had a regulatory structure that did not let them discontinue trains or simply adjust to what the market was giving them. So they had to go to these lengths to exploit the regulatory structure so that they were able to accomplish what the passengers said, which is that they didn't want to ride the trains anymore. So Graham Clater was part of that. Another thing he did that was somewhat controversial when he was president of the Southern Railway was while he was willing to continue running passenger trains on the Southern, such as the famous Southern Crescent, he was not willing to continue running them on the Central of Georgia, which by that point had become a subsidiary of the Southern. So on one hand, they're going to the ICC saying, look, we're not going to run these trains anymore. Uh, We're part of Amtrak and sorry. Central Georgia is part of Amtrak, but the Southern itself is not, which ended up being a controversy, which the Southern ultimately won, uh, as the Central Georgia remained a distinct entity. However, Graham Clater, he was a rail enthusiast, just like you and me. He loved trains. His brother was a rail enthusiast and ended up running the Norfolk and Western. And they really did a lot, the two of them, for the rail industry to make it the success it is today. And I encourage each of you, if you have the opportunity to go to the Virginia Museum of Transportation and see the exhibit they have on the Clater Brothers, it will bring tears to your eyes how hard these two gentlemen worked in very difficult circumstances and having to balance that personal desire, which I'm pretty sure if it were up to Graham Clater, he would have happily run those trains empty. Um, my guess in order that they would be around and even for the few people like you and me who probably would ride them uh, and pay as much as we could afford. But he had to balance it with the reality of leading a company and at a time when the passengers were saying they'd rather be in their cars or on the airplanes. So in 1982, Clater takes over Amtrak. And one of the first things he does is, according to Doug Riddle in his great book, is calls up Eugene Garfield, who he'd been friends with for many years, and he said, hey, I'm bringing your train back, and he worked hard to do it. So they acquired the terminals in Lorton, Virginia, and Sanford, Florida. They acquired a substantial number of the auto carriers, both tri-level and bi-level, that the Auto Train Corporation had, and then they set to work about putting a service together. There was one little minor, kind of small hitch here, And that was the question of labor. Now, Eugene used the crews from the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac and the Seaboard Coastline. That's fine. It was expensive, though. One of the things that they were required to do is have a baggage master. Now, a baggage master might make perfect sense on a train like the Silver Star, which had, um, during Seaboard Coastline times, as well as the Seaboard Airline as well, Those trains were very long, particularly in the winter. They would have uh, one or more baggage cars. So there was the job of keeping the baggage straight, making sure that uh, it gets to where it's supposed to go and gets attached to the person it's supposed to be attached to. Even in the Amtrak era, as I was riding while Graham Clater was president, you would frequently have a baggage car that came up on the Tampa side of those trains and then one that came up from Miami, When the trains were combined at Jacksonville to go north, you had two. So you had a lot of people with a lot of baggage, and this had to be managed. Makes perfect sense. Auto train, on the other hand, 
in the Eugene Garfield era and in the Amtrak era as now, you kept your baggage in your car. The only thing you took aboard the train with you is what you needed for the evening you'd be aboard the train. So that can be the clothes you're going to change into in the next morning, your medicines, your toothbrush, and so on, books you're going to read. That's what you take. That's your carry-on baggage, and you're going to take that to your coach seat with you, or you're going to take that uh, into your sleeping compartment. So you don't need a baggage master. The Amtrak management went to the unions at the RF&P and the SCL, and they said, okay, guys, listen, we want two things. Number one, we want to get rid of the baggage master. We don't need it. Number two, we want to adjust the crew districts because they wanted to have the crews run a lot further than they did on the existing districts. Now, for a little background, railroad crew districts for many years were based on 100 miles per day. And that's because steam engines usually operated for 100 miles before they had to be uh, restocked with coal and more, or in some cases, oil, if you were on a Western railroad, uh, and more water. Now, there are other situations, such as the New York Central, where they had ways of taking on water on the fly and so on. But in general, the crew district was 100 days for, excuse me, 100 miles for this reason. Now, as time went on, this became anachronistic. Why? Because we got diesel locomotives, and diesel locomotives can operate a lot further before they need to be refueled. And of course, they don't require water unless it is a passenger locomotive with a steam boiler to provide steam to the coaches, sleepers, and dining cars. Um, this was something that Amtrak was very, very interested in doing, changing that because they did not have their own train and engine crew employees at this point. And we say train and engine crews, we're talking about the engineer, the fireman, and the conductor, uh, and brakemen, if there are brakemen to be aboard the train. So Amtrak said, all right, let's use this as an opportunity to hire our own train and engine employees. So they went to the folks at the RF&P and the SCL, the unions, and the unions on the RF&P were fine with it. They didn't require a baggage master. This was not an issue for them. They were okay with extending the districts and uh, basically acceding to what Amtrak was hoping for with their version of the auto train service. On the Seaboard Coastline, however, it was a different story. And there was the former Seaboard guys who were actually not even on the route of the auto train, but did have the ability to bid for jobs where the auto train operated on the former Atlantic Coastline route that said that not only would they not accede to getting rid of the baggage master, they would also not accede to potential changes in crew districts. So this could have been World War III as far as labor is concerned. However, it was not because the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, uh, at the time Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, but now the BLENT, they uh, agreed with Amtrak to a unique approach that would allow employees of the RF&P and the Seaboard Coastline to bid on jobs for auto train, and they would be able to go over, become Amtrak employees, and work the auto train and have the ability to flow back. And that's a term you might have heard, flow back rights go back to the prior carrier uh, on a one-time deal. So they went over there, they ran it for, worked on it for a while and decided, hey, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd like to go back to my old assignment. They would have been able to do so and keep their seniority. Uh, the only requirement was, though, that they could not have been fired by Amtrak. So that would have prevented someone from, for example, really committing some rules violations or otherwise, and then Amtrak saying, nope, you got to go. 
and then them saying, okay, well, Seaboard Coastline, you have to take me back. So they precluded that. But that is what led to different operating agreements for trains operated uh, Silver Star, Silver Meteor, which operated right next to the auto train, and then the auto train itself. But that was groundbreaking because these were the first employees, train and engine crew employees, that Amtrak had on its entire network. Even the employees who were operating Amtrak trains on the Northeast Corridor, where Amtrak owned the track, were actually Conrail employees who were operating for Amtrak, but they were, in fact, not employed by Amtrak itself. So, uh, the labor issues done. That brings us to something else I'd like to show you, which is the equipment. So, when Amtrak took over and decided to start operating the auto train, this is what the train was led by. The 3,000 horsepower P30CH. And if you write down the letters P30CH on your, uh, or the designation P30CH on a piece of paper, and you don't look at it too closely, it'll look like the word pooch. And that's what these engines were nicknamed, pooches. But they were anything but pooches. In fact, I'm pretty sure most people would have called them dogs because they leaked a lot of oil, they were loud, they were ugly. Um, but they were also, you know, kind of the most recent example of General Electric's efforts to utilize um, existing freight locomotive technology in passenger locomotion. And uh, one of those good examples previously, there was the U30CG that the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe had, and also the U28CG. So I encourage you to go ahead and look those two up, because if you think the P30CH looks strange, uh, the U30CG will certainly blow you away. Uh, these locomotives were used extensively by Amtrak across its system, but they ended up being concentrated on two trains, the Sunset Limited and the Auto Train, until they went away in the early 1990s. The Pooches were replaced by F40PHs, which did not do as good a job as the P30s because the P30s were six axle. So while they had their mechanical difficulties, they were also much better at starting a long, heavy train like the auto train is because you will have uh you know up to 20 passenger cars and somewhere near the same amount of auto carriers although this number does vary based on the time of year so when amtrak decided to start using the f40 phs on the on the auto train as the p30s really wore out they discovered since this isn't going to work they leased some locomotives and this is one example of what they leased here which is a gp40 it is a straight gp40 why are these significant number one amtrak never owned them they released from helm leasing which is a major uh lesser of rail equipment both locomotives and rail cars they were also as part of this lease fitted with 480 volt horsepower, uh, not horsepower, volt, uh, HEP, hotel electric power or head-in power, depending on which industry you come from, cables that allowed a lead locomotive such as an F40PH or a pair of lead locomotives to still provide uh, electric power to the passenger car consist behind them. And that is brings up one other notable change that Amtrak did versus what uh, the original auto train did original AT typically ran their um, car carriers behind the locomotives and then the passenger cars at the end of the train behind the car carriers. Amtrak has operated the passenger cars behind the locomotives and the car carriers at the end of the train. Not a major difference, but it is noteworthy when you look at 
past images of both operations. Um, what Auto Train did is its U-36Bs never had any kind of passenger train heating or electrical capacity whatsoever. They continued to use the same steam heat that freight railroads did prior to Amtrak's creation, and Amtrak did for its first decade. And uh, that meant they had steam generator cars, and these were cars with the same kind of boiler that might be in the back of an EMD E8 or an Amtrak SDP-40F, and that would provide the steam to go through the cars and keep them warm and also operate steam-activated air conditioning in the cars that did have that. Amtrak, of course, switched over to head-in power or hotel electric power, which is to pipe 480 volts of electricity through the train uh, with connections on each side of the cars, and this would go to transformers that would step it down for use in the various car auxiliaries, which can be anything from the plug that you would plug your razor into when you're going to shave in your sleeping car in the morning, or the lights that are keeping everything bright, even the ovens and so forth. So a step down to 240 volts or 120 volts, depending upon the application, but a 480 volt bus that goes right through the train. So uh, these, this is the, the power that Amtrak used until the introduction of the Genesis locomotives, and these were the original Genesis, the Dash 8, Dash 40 BPs, which started in 1993, and Autotrain was among their first uh, assignments. Now, one more thing about Amtrak's Autotrain, and I am taking you over to a picture of the inside of a Milwaukee Road Superdome. This one is on Friends of the 261, but if you look in the background, you see a little bit as it's going through the um, slideshow, the picture of this car in Amtrak Phase 3 paint. This was one of the cars that was acquired by Amtrak for auto train service at the direction of W. Graham Clater Jr. Mr. Clater wanted the auto train to be first rate, and so not only did he personally go through and pick out the equipment that he wanted to be used on it. So Amtrak had a lot of uh, steam heated equipment and also heritage fleet equipment. Uh, and that's the same thing as the steam heated streamline equipment, just that had been rebuilt by Amtrak with the 480 volt HEP and other interior changes. He picked out the cars that he wanted to be on that train. So it would be different from everything else in the system. And so one of the things he also did was went out and purchased several of these cars for Milwaukee Road Superdomes from Princess Tours, and they were used in Amtrak service on the auto train. Uh, funny story about that. Apparently, he was a big fan of these cars, but the operating people were not a big fan of these cars because they leaked so much. So uh, no matter what, they were very comfortable. They had been rebuilt to provide a first-class diner experience, which I think is amazing. Just imagine eating in a dome where you can see the moonlight, the stars, everything, as the train whizzes down the tracks. This is something Amtrak does not offer today. One of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of the Superliner equipment that that replaced these domes and the single-level equipment that came, uh, was operated during the first 10-plus uh, years of the auto train service. But it was truly a magical experience, as has been described by everybody who had an opportunity to experience it. And it is an example of the commitment that Graham Clater really did show to this. And since Mr. Clater passed away in 1994, there have been a variety of changes. Number one, of course, the Genesis locomotives took over pulling the train. Number two, the superliners were added. 
three stations in Lorton and Sanford were knocked down and new stations were built in their place. So now, even though you will find it is still fairly cramped when you go there to board the train, uh, it's a lot better than it used to be. And those are great looking facilities. I've been in the Lorton facility. It is, uh, it's very clean. It's comfortable. During the time you have to sit and wait, you certainly can without getting antsy. And not only that, but you have a really nice view out to see what they're doing, which is loading all the cars on and then all the process that it takes to get the train set up and out the door. Uh, There were also adjustments made to the track, especially in Lorton, where in the past you actually had to build the train in part on the main line, which certainly snarled not only RF&P operations, but then those of Virginia Railway Express, which started in the early 1990s and increased the number of trains that were operating through this area. So if you have an opportunity to ride the auto train, I sure hope you will. It means a lot to me having gotten to know Eugene Garfield over the years. And one of the greatest compliments he ever paid to me is that as I was discussing my ideas with him, he said that I reminded him of Graham Clater. And to this day, a lot of what I work to do is to repay that compliment and prove him right. Uh, I don't, you know, Graham Clater to me is like Nolan Ryan is to baseball, uh, is like Taylor Swift is to the Swifties. So thinking about that and ever being able to do anything that would merit such a compliment is something that I sure hope I'm able to do. But I hope you have enjoyed this. We will be back with you on Wednesday for our next episode where we talk about Via Rail Canada. I know, I know. You freight train guys are saying, Phil, you're talking about a lot of passenger trains here. Don't make me talk about passenger trains every day. We'll talk about Via Rail Canada. Then we will get back to some more freight trains. I promise. And in the meantime, I want you to like. I want you to subscribe. I want you to share. And I want you to go over to Etsy.com and buy this, your 2024 North American Railroad calendar by us at All Things Trains. We will see you down the main line. And thank you for taking your time with us today.